We are going to be finishing up the prologue of the book of Romans this morning, the first 17 verses of this wonderful book to the church is considered a kind of prologue to the content of the message, um, which will be summarized in today's preaching in verses 15 and 16. So if you would turn so that that scripture is right in front of you, our gentlemen are bringing around the note sheets and pencils for you, uh, as well as a Bible. If you need one, please raise your hand and the guys will make sure to pass a Bible down to your seat so that you have the Word of God in front of you. I want you to be properly equipped for our time together in the Word this morning. Missy and I sometimes like to sit down with our kids and watch some of the movies that she and I grew up with in the late 80s and the early 90s. Such cinematic powerhouses as Flight of the Navigator and Willow and The Wizard, which isn't about wizards, it's about Nintendo, but... uh, These are all old-school, cheesy movies that we grew up with, and so we like to share these movies with our kids and get a a laugh out of watching them see how far behind the technology they are today. And with streaming services like Netflix and Prime, a lot of these movies are available to watch free of charge. Uh, And so we sit down and we we enjoy a, a short movie together with our kids from time to time. We do have to be careful, though, because some of these films are less appropriate than we remember them being. I don't know if you've run into that before, where you think so innocently of something you saw, and then you watch it back, you know, and the Lord has grown you a little bit more, and that refinement that he has gone on in your heart and in your mind, you think, wow, I don't really feel comfortable watching a film like this anymore. Uh, And so God has improved our sanctification. So we typically watch the trailer real quick to jar our memory a little bit before we subject our kids to it. Sometimes we'll go online and read reviews of the movie from a uh, some of those helpful websites that give you parental insights and what you can talk about with your kids on these things. Sometimes for the older shows, there isn't a trailer around. Like they either didn't ever make one or they've lost it to time. And so they'll just select a 30-second scene from the movie and play the clip of the movie. And those clips have got to be generated completely randomly because sometimes the 30-second clip they choose to tell you is has absolutely zero to do with like the main thrust of the plot. You learn really almost nothing about the movie from this little weird section of dialogue that just so happened to be plucked out of the middle of the film. So a movie trailer properly is designed to give you a snapshot of what the whole show is supposed to be like so that you can know whether you want to invest an hour and a half or two hours of your life watching that movie. It gives you a basic idea of the plot, an intriguing glimpse at the characters that are involved in the storyline. It stirs up a certain amount of curiosity about how the conflict that is presented, even in a snapshot form in that trailer, is hopefully going to be resolved. Now, in some ways, verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 could function as the helpful movie trailer for the whole book of Romans. Here at the end of the section that we call the prologue, Paul lays out a summary of the basic thrust of what he's hoping to communicate so that we have here in brief form the heart of the Romans letter, a sketch of the main points that we can anticipate Paul teaching us as we work through the rest of what he has written. And so we're reading verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 this morning. That's what the Lord is going to cause our hearts and minds to dwell upon. So let's read it first, and then we'll pray for God's guidance in the understanding of this passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Holy God, we thank you for this morning and we praise you for the things that you'll reveal about yourself to us in this great and mighty word. God, we need you to reveal yourself to us. We cannot search the world over and find you on our own. Lord, help us to trust what you have told us through your prophets. And I pray, Lord God, that as we think about this text and the way that it sets the table for the book of Romans, that it would help us to have great expectations and excitement to know that this book is about your gospel, about the way by which you save people and bring them near to yourself. And so, Lord God, bring us near to you even this morning as we read these things and dwell on them, hide them in our hearts, and help us to not sin against you as we obey your word, Lord, out of gratitude for the transformation you brought about in us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul begins this thesis statement of his letter by making a very straightforward claim. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The Western world that we live in is largely a shameless world. It's almost as if a war has been declared against the cautious warnings of the human conscience in the culture that we live in. That's what shame is, right? It is almost as if it serves the same function as pain in our physical bodies but it does so for our spirit. It is a feeling that we should pull back from something because it is not right. When we sin against God, we do damage to our relationship with Him. And so the shame that we feel for breaking God's law should be to us a cause to recoil from that sin, to repent of it, and to turn towards the Lord Jesus who is our hope. So rather than feeling proper guilt when we break God's law, our world trains us instead to think instead that sin is not that big of a deal. It trains us to think of ourselves as being sinful by nature in such a way that we're only human, so we can't expect real virtue or purity from ourselves. And apart from the work of Jesus, that is true to an extent. But when there is no shame in a culture, when we do not feel the the prick of the conscience when we break God's law, sin will not only be tolerated, it will often be defended to the point that it's sometimes made out to be a virtue of some kind instead of seeing it as that thing that we should avoid at all costs because of the damage it can do to our relationship with the Lord. And so in our day and age, it's been common to hear things like drag queen storybook hour at the local library or even in public schools where children are subjected to things that are shameful and unrighteous but are things that are being normalized by our culture that has no conscience against them, has no shame. Mankind really should be ashamed of his shamelessness when we think about it. Our sin should lead to remorse in us. Rather than defending our actions, rather than pretending like they don't matter, rather than comparing our sins to the sins of people far more heinous and villainous to us, we should call our sin what it is and feel the shame of that sin so that that shame will turn us to the victory of Christ Jesus. But the gospel is something that the believer ought never be ashamed about. When we speak about the gospel as we will this morning, we should recognize that we're declaring something that should in us give us hope and confidence and glory because it is the story of Christ's victory over everything that we fail in. At the center of the letter to the Romans will be a great examination of man's need for the gospel. Uh, We will characterize this first section of the book of Romans by the word guilt. 
where the apostle lays out the need for the gospel and helps us to understand how being born in Adam has caused us to be naturally defaulted to rebellion in our hearts. The contents of what makes that gospel absolutely essential to a right relationship with God and therefore to life itself is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to characterize that second section of the letter with the, the word grace. We're going to see the graceful love of Christ poured out onto us as he stands in the place of sinners and takes their affliction so that they might walk free and forgiven. Along with practical instruction to the believer about how to live in such a way that the gospel is shining through in every aspect of our lives, the book of Romans will talk about that in its third section, which we will, talk, uh, we will call the, the gratitude section of the letter. We'll be taught how we're to respond to God with loving thanksgiving for this grace that he has used to rescue us from our guilty sin. So that's, that's the, the summation, the breakdown of the book. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel that declares these things. And he's about to tell us why. But first, let us consider what happens if we are ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the means by which God has determined to save sinful people so that they might be brought near to God and experience a peace with Him. The gospel is not a self-help process. It is not steps one through ten of your journey to being a better person. It is a mighty act of God that brings about tremendous change in the hearts of the people who are impacted by His work. It is God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel declares that Jesus has laid down His own perfect life and suffered in the place of sinners. He has taken their shame upon Himself. And in doing so, He has put that shame to death. He's risen from the grave, triumphant, and is now calling His people to Himself from every corner of the world so that His kingdom might come and His will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to embrace the gospel is to admit that we are sinners and to confess that we are powerless to overcome our sin. Without the intervention of God's grace, we are doomed to the wrath of God. And so to deny the gospel is to shrink away from the very means by which God is saving people from sin. Think of the warning that Jesus gave us in Mark chapter 8, verses 38 through 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If we are ashamed of the gospel, we are undeniably, therefore, ashamed of Jesus. For the gospel is all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so we must guard our hearts, church, against the temptation to shrink back from the gospel. We must battle the temptation of being ashamed of the message of salvation and grace alone. In verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us two great reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. Two reasons that should fortify our hearts when we begin to feel that perhaps proclaiming this gospel or living boldly in, 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 the, in the, the channel of this gospel or, or by professing it to non-believers that we might be putting ourselves in danger. No, Paul says, do not be ashamed of this gospel. Here is why. And the first reason he gives is because it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. In another letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. As we worship the Lord and glorify Him for His character, we will often sing of the impressive power of God and it has many facets, doesn't it? I I even prayed this morning about the creative power of God and how when we look out into the world and see the beauties of the complexity of what God has made, it stirs in us an undeniable thought that this cannot be an accident, that there must be a creative God who has made these things. So God's power is expressed in what he has made. God has an amazing power in his knowledge. We know that there is nothing hidden from his sight. And we, we know how important knowledge is to power in this world. God having all knowledge is limitless also in his power. There's nothing that is good that he cannot do. He freely does his will. No one can stop him from accomplishing his decrees. But the power that is in view here, specifically, is his judicial power. The power to condemn those who are wicked, the power to declare innocence. God is the judge. He is the one who makes the call in our lives about what happens to us for eternity. So in Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew Matthew is recording Christ here pointing towards the judicial power of God. God alone holds jurisdiction over the eternal destiny of our souls. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel increases when we ascribe to man more power and authority than man actually has. We may fear that other people will judge us for admitting our guilt and our need as Christians because if you're going to embrace the gospel, you have to declare plainly, I am a sinner. I am one who has broken the laws of God. I can't be classified as a good person because the law of God is good and I have broken that law. So we might fear that if I'm, if I'm going to stand forth in the gospel, that makes me vulnerable because I'm admitting defeat, essentially. My pride is going to be stung by that, but other people might also point the finger at me and laugh and say, you're weak. You need someone to save you. We may fear that they will think us fools for believing these things are true because so many of, what, many of the things that Christ teaches us and what the gospel proclaims runs in contradiction to our human logic or our natural instincts. And so the rest of the world may say, well, that's just foolish to think that the world was created in seven days. That could never occur. And yet when we hold the word in our hands and say, this is what the scripture has taught to me, and so I believe that God has the power to speak and bring the world into existence. We put, ourselves, we put a target upon ourselves. And some might fear that that target will bring critical eyes, and thoughtful, logical arguments against us. And so some people shrink back from the gospel and they don't want to be open and honest about what they believe. We may fear that those who love us will turn away from us because we have turned to Christ. And I know that with tears, some of you have shared about how that's happened in some of your families, where your allegiance to the Lord Jesus and to his way of life has caused a rift to form between you and those whom you love who are not trusting in Jesus Christ. So all those things can work in such a way that we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel that saves us. But in this passage in Matthew, Jesus gives the perfect reason why we should be unashamed. 
The gospel is the very thing that makes it possible for us to stand before the judge of all that is wicked and good and yet not be condemned before him. And whose judgment over us could possibly carry more weight than God's judgment. If God, who holds the keys to the only verdict in our lives that carries any eternal significance, if He is the one that says yea or nay, then how could we fear any lesser authority? If God be for us, church, then who could possibly be against us? To be sure, if you confess Christ, many will be against you. But let the encouragement of Paul fortify your heart that you might think in your, whole, in, in your mind and in your heart, let them be against me. Let them oppose the kingdom of God with all of their might if they desire. It does not matter to my decision. If they stand against you, Christian, they are standing against the God whom you have trusted. We need not stand ashamed. Matthew 10, 26 through 27, which preceded that verse about not fearing anyone else, says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. You can't do that if you're ashamed of the gospel. So this is a summons to be unashamed, to confess without hesitation or reservation that which has made you what you are today. Confess Christ and confess his mighty gospel. The gospel is powerful because it does something, something that all of our focused powers could not do. It has the power to change a spirit from spiritual death into spiritual life. It has the power to subdue the rebellious heart. It has the power to make a sinner into a saint. This is not a power to be trifled with or taken lightly. Let us not be mistaken as well here. The gospel also has the power to destroy and to condemn. The good news declares that all who are in Christ have experienced forgiveness for their sins. The atoning blood of Jesus has washed them clean. But the gospel also makes it clear that those who are not in Christ are utterly outside of his hope. The gospel displays God's power to accomplish both salvation and condemnation. And each are important tasks in their own right. Both are utilized to express God's glory. So when God saves a sinner, we see the power of his mercy and his grace. We see the loving kindness of God in full display in his willingness to be patient and to bear with that individual. Though they are not perfect, he places his own righteousness upon them. And when God condemns a sinner, we see the power of his justice as he declares to the world that rebellion against the truth and against goodness will not go un, uh, undealt with. So do you know the power of the gospel, church? It's an important question to ponder this morning. Have you meditated on just how mighty this message of salvation is? There's a sad trend in many churches today where the end goal of church is to evoke a response in people, to get them to like the church, to get them to become involved with its activities. And if that becomes the end game, friends, then we shouldn't be surprised that pastors have often resorted to setting the gospel to the side for a time in an attempt to get people excited about the church for some other reason. Don't we see that in the church in America today? A concert-like worship experience, a never-ending menu of specialized ministries designed to meet the felt needs of people, 
age-specific ministry so that you never have to interact with people that aren't just like you. A no-commitment approach to membership that people can just opt out of anytime they want to. We see this so often in church as a way to lure in folks who are maybe put off by the gospel but might like these other things. But this might shock us when we think about it. The goal of the gospel is not the church. The goal of the gospel is the glory of God. And that happens when the church has their attention on Christ and loves the gospel. That glory only comes through the gospel. A big church with little to no gospel doesn't glorify God. In fact, it isn't properly a church if the gospel is not being preached and proclaimed there. And if we show someone the gospel and then they reject it, they have rejected the power of God for salvation. If we then pivot and show them some lesser power instead and try to get them to buy into that, then we may win them to that idea, to a program, to a culture, but we've not won them to salvation. May the church be ever committed to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we broadcast the gospel to the world in all that we do and without shame. Consider what Paul said about this power in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. See, these are two things that are the gospel. People we don't think will be attracted to the gospel. And so we try to impress people with our eloquation, with the ways that we speak so winsomely and, and so cleverly. Or we try to impress them with our knowledge and have all these facts and all this logic, and yet we leave out the beauty of the work that Christ did. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was weakness and in fear and much trembling says the apostle paul and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but the power of god this is the power we're talking about here the power that gives us courage to not be ashamed of the gospel the apostle paul maybe one of the most intelligent people who ever lived when you read what he wrote and the things that he expressed to us amazing thought process by which he shows to us our need for the Lord God. But this man did not stand in a pulpit and impress people with Paul. That was never his goal. His goal was to melt into the background as Christ and what Christ has done shine brilliantly in his preaching and in his writing. Lofty speech is a lame substitute for the power of the gospel. Human wisdom is, is no substitute for the truth of what Christ has done for us. Anything beside the work of Christ and the person of Christ is an unacceptable substitute for the power of the gospel. Have we been exposed to this power, church? Many in the church in Rome had, and Paul was hopeful that in time, God would give him the opportunity to proclaim that gospel even there among them, in that great and bustling city. In Matthew 22, a group of Sadducees came to Jesus, and they tried to stump him with a complicated theological scenario. Uh, The the Sadducees did not believe in any afterlife. They believed that you just worship God here and your time on earth is all that you get. And once it's over, you go to the grave, game over. And so they came to Jesus and they said, well, 
Help us understand, Rabbi, if a woman is married to a man and then he dies, and she's a Jewish woman, so she leans on the Levitical laws that say that her brother-in-law can then take her in as his wife to try to give her a son so that the bloodline of her his brother could be carried on and they won't lose their land grants. But before that can happen, he dies. And so then she, she goes to the next brother and happens over and over again. There's all these men that have a claim. When they get to heaven, the Sadducees say, sarcastically, who's going to be her husband? Who is she married to? In Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered them. And here's what he said. Listen to this. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These Sadducees had not come to grab hold of the power of the gospel. They loved their law, they loved their philosophy, but they did not see the power of God's decree to save sinners to himself and to build an everlasting kingdom in which those redeemed individuals would glorify him forever. They were missing the whole heart of it. One of Paul's goals here in in really just about everything he writes is to make known the power of God for salvation. And the best way to know the power is to know Jesus Christ. If you find yourself continually frustrated at what you cannot do, if you find yourself just so exasperated that you can't get over this sin, that you can't make this right in your life, that you just can't understand this doctrine, that you really struggle in your parenting, that you can't be a a wonderful witness and testimony at work, that you're not brave enough, that you don't have an eloquent way of saying the things that you believe in your heart. If you're constantly frustrated by this, you need to shift your attention away from what you can or cannot do and onto what Christ has done. The gospel is not about what you can or cannot do. The gospel is about what Jesus Christ has done. And he has done it for you. He's done it because you can't do it. And so, yes, we should, we should strive to be better and to think more clearly and to serve the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But that's not what saves us. What saves us is that Christ loved the Father with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And by his amazing grace, his righteousness is then given to us as a gift, a beautiful and wonderful gift. Be encouraged by these passages that humble us, like Romans 5, 6, where the Apostle Paul will say, while we were still, what? Weak. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 8, 34, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are weak. The law is weak. It can't save us. But the Lord is mighty. And so let our joy and our hope be in our Savior, the one who has come to display the very power of God. Next, Paul mentions the scope of this power's application. He says the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And we know that means not everyone will believe, okay? The Lord doesn't indiscriminately just save the whole world. He is saving a people to himself. It's worth explaining here what Paul means when he uses the word belief. He is speaking of a belief that is more than just mere knowledge of a thing. Belief, biblical belief, or faith we may call it, 
It starts with knowledge. We cannot have faith without knowing what our faith is based upon. We need to be exposed to the gospel. It needs to be preached to us. We need to see what the scripture has to say about the Lord God and his plan to redeem. We need to have it proclaimed in such a way that we are given the opportunity to respond to it. And so our minds need to know of the gospel. But secondly, you must be going beyond that. We can't just hear the gospel to have faith in him. The second part of true faith is acknowledgement that what we've been exposed to is actually true. Some people hear the gospel and they refuse to believe it. They just won't, you know, that, that can't be true. I, I don't believe that man is inherently sinful and wicked. I think people are just good inside, aren't they? So I want to believe and so I'm just going to reject that gospel. So it's more than just hearing, knowing of the gospel. It's also believing the gospel in a sense that you acknowledge that it is a true thing, that God is real, that he does dwell on high, that his law is true and good, and that we do break his law through our disobedience. But that in even of itself is not complete faith because the devil and his demons could all say that they know of the gospel. They actually know that it's true, but they haven't done the third part. The third part of Paul's biblical belief is a willingness to respond to the things that we come to know that are true in a trusting way. We're not only understanding the gospel in intellectual sense, we do more than just affirm it as being real and true and worthy of our attention, but we respond to that truth in a way that is consistent with our belief in it. Let me illustrate this for you in a different topic. Do you believe, do you have faith that prayer is important? You know, if you understand what prayer is, you're part of the way there, okay? I know that prayer is communication with the Lord God. But do you acknowledge that it is not just talking to yourself? It's not just whatever you want it to be. That prayer is specifically seeking the Lord, that you're actually being heard by the Lord God when you lift up your voice to Him. Okay, so that's understanding of prayer. That's belief that it is real. But to really believe in prayer, you have to actually pray, right? Do you pray? Do you actually live that out in some way? Are you, are you believing to the point where it means that you're actually stopping what you do throughout the day and, and putting the world to the side and talking with your God and, and appealing to Him, confessing to Him, adoring Him in prayer, asking Him for the things that you need? So true faith is not just an intellectual exercise. And it's not just agreeing with the Lord, but it is truly putting your faith and trust in Him. In describing the scope of God's power in the gospel, Paul teaches us that there is an order to how God has distributed it to people. He says the gospel has gone out to the Jew first, and it has gone out also to the Greek. The order here carries historical meaning. The message was first entrusted to the chosen nation, of the people of Israel, those whom God initially entered into covenant with. By his interaction with them, mankind's absolute need for grace is proved and illustrated. As the law is given to them and they constantly fail in the law, God is saying to the rest of history, this is what happens when you follow the law without my help. You must trust in me or the law is nothing but a proclamation of your weakness. By the prophets that God gave to Israel, God gave notice of his coming solution to that problem, for telling the Messiah to come. And through the nation of Israel, God establishes the context, therefore, of grace salvation. 
By the way of their history with him, God preemptively teaches the world about sacrificial atonement. And we have a picture of that in the sacrifices that they would bring to the temple. So we can see just what Christ is doing when he becomes the spotless lamb for us. So this gospel is first to the Israelites, but the gospel is never intended to be the sole property of one people, uh, uh, one nation. When Paul says, and also to the Greek, he's using a kind of generalization. Jesus' reference to those who are Greek applies to any people group that is not of the nation of Israel. He's not just talking about Greek-speaking cultures. He's splitting all of mankind into two categories, the Jews and the non-Jews. So he's declaring that all kinds of people will be saved by the power of the gospel. Having said these things, Paul is ready to lay out his second key reason why he's not ashamed of the good news of Jesus. The first reason, because the gospel is the power of salvation. How can we be ashamed of God's power for salvation? And then he backs that up in verse 17 by saying, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel, friends, is a framework of sorts. And what is on display in this framework is not the righteousness of man. The beautiful object of this framework, which this framework displays or reveals, as Paul describes it, is the righteousness of God. Now the frame, the righteousness of God, is a specific formation of words that carries a heavy significance throughout the canon of Paul's writings in the New Testament. And were we to read through all of his letters, and the history of his ministry recorded in the book of Acts, we would begin to see that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is quite specific in what it is communicating. There are some who read this phrase and they see in it a declaration that those who are saved by the gospel are themselves transformed to such an extent that the way that they live their own lives accurately portrays the righteousness of God. By way of this interpretation, the righteousness of God is a saved person's ability to now live according to the law in a way that represents God well. We know that apart from Christ, we can't do that at all. When we're saved in Christ, we can begin to live in the righteousness of the word. And this is known as the transformative righteousness of God. Christians bear this righteousness in a sense. It is what we reflect of God's image as we are redeemed and walking in the light. Christians display it through their obedience and conformity to Christ. But considering the force of this specific phrase and its consistent usage in Paul's letters, it is actually best to think of this phrase not referring to our ability to reflect the righteousness of God, but to God's righteousness itself that is powerfully expressed in his decision to redeem us. So consider these two examples, which we will run into later on in the book of Romans, but are important for our understanding here of this phrase now. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. This is fresh in our minds. It was read as a call to worship passage this morning where Brother Stephen uh, read, But now the righteousness of God, there's that phrase, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His gift of grace or by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood 
to be received by faith. Look at the end of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in God's divine forbearance, because He was patient, He had a plan. God in former times passed over sin. We think about this in the Passover celebration when the people of Israel were told when the angel of death comes through the land of Egypt, if you trust me, then sacrifice the lamb and put the blood upon the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of death sees that sign of your trusting in me, then he will think of the righteousness of God and will pass over you. You will not be condemned. But every other household, the firstborn of that household will be put to death. And so this idea of passing over sins is really important. And Paul deals with it because someone might make the mistake of thinking that God in those past days was negligent in his adjudication against sin. That he did not punish sin back then. He just sort of let it slide. But in order for God to be a just God, he can't just let sin go. He must deal with it. And so this sin that that is real, the sin that is an offense to the character of God, God must create some kind of a payment for that sin. God in His righteousness had to redeem sinners in such a way that their sins were truly dealt with through a judgment. And how would God accomplish that? Through the suffering of Jesus Christ, His Son. This is that propitiation that was mentioned in Romans 3.25, that God put together a substitute through His own sacrifice the sins of all who would trust in him and all who had trusted in him would be rightly dealt with on the cross. The blood that Jesus shed shows the righteousness of God. How? By proving that God is a God not only of mercy, but a God of justice as well. Remember when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed and he asked the Father in prayer if there was any way for the cup of suffering to be removed from his lips. Is there any other way that we can save your covenant people? And there was not another way. Jesus had to suffer and die. Why? Because the righteousness of God had to be displayed. His legal righteousness. If Jesus frees man from sin by simply pardoning him, then sin remains unpunished and the righteousness of God is violated. God has a personal responsibility, not to any higher authority outside of himself, but to his own nature to do what is right. And it is right to punish sin. And so the righteousness of God which saves us is not our righteousness or our righteousness as a reflection of God's righteousness. It is properly God's own righteousness. Let me give you a second example. This is also later on in the book of Romans. Chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them, meaning the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is the emphasis here in chapter 10 of Romans? Not the righteousness of the person who trusts, but God's personal righteousness. Because the righteousness of God could not ignore sin, Legal payment had to be made to satisfy God's just wrath towards that sin. 
the elect will, by God's grace, submit to that righteousness. And we call that a forensic righteousness of God. Forensic because in a legal sense, it takes care of everything that is needed for justice to be done. God is not a liar. He deals with things honestly and openly. And so through the blood of his own sacrifice, he covers the sins of those who deserve to be punished for their wickedness. So God's people are declared righteous in a legal sense because the perfect righteousness of God's Son has been credited to them and it counts on their behalf. When we are justified by the faith of God, we're not made perfectly righteous. I'm justified today, but I'm not a perfectly righteous person. I was just singing earlier and the Lord brought me to tears thinking about how blessed I am that even though I failed to keep His covenant perfectly, He continues to love me anyway. And and we sing that almost every week, but today it just particularly hit me. What a blessing it is that I'm not here a redeemed man because I've earned it somehow or because I'm worthy of it, but simply because God and his sovereignty chose not to display his glory through punishing me, but through redeeming me and by being punished himself. What a blessing and a joy that is. The Christian sees this when they hear the gospel preached. The Christian affirms this to be true when they acknowledge their sin and confess that only Jesus was perfectly righteous to the point that he could suffer for our sins. The Christian believes by putting their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, by trusting God's righteousness, that it is enough to save them. Can you see then why, and and Paul quotes in verses 17, Habakkuk 2.4, where he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith, by his faith in the great work that Jesus is going to do, not in his own work or righteousness. The kind of belief, the kind of faith that we're speaking about here, we have as a result of God's forensic righteousness at work in us, a faith that impacts our life. We don't just know about Jesus. We don't just acknowledge that he is real, but we trust him and we desire to walk obediently as a result of seeing what he has done for us. You know, Paul had a good bit of ministry left in him when he wrote the book of Romans. We know that his hopeful timeline to visit the church in Rome was delayed quite a bit. He is telling them, I've tried to get to you and I haven't had a chance to yet. And there would be some time still after the writing of this letter before he was able to finally set foot in the city of Rome. But between the time this letter was written and the time that he actually got to be there in Rome and, and interact and fellowship with the, the saints there, God used Paul in some mighty ways. But eventually, Paul began to understand that his firm stand for the gospel would soon result in his death. He could tell that his time on earth was limited and that he would soon be executed for the gospel that he was professing. The work of the gospel, however, would not die with Paul. And so in possibly the the last piece of correspondence that we have from Paul, the apostle writes to his friend and his co-laborer in the work of the Lord, a young man named Timothy, And his message to Timothy is honest and it's serious. He essentially tells this this companion in the faith, he says, I am going to die soon. And when I do, you've got to continue to preach the gospel. And you've got to continue to raise up other men who will preach the gospel so that when you die, if you are put to death for this message, that the message will continue to be preached through them as well. And so in the opening statement, of that short pastoral letter, Paul has the following to say to this young elder. He says in 2 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 8 and then verses 11 through 12. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And here we see in the life of the Apostle Paul the proclamation of faith in the one Jesus who can save, the gospel in display, and a man who's not ashamed of that which has made him what he is. The righteous shall live by faith. And it is a faith that goes on from faith to faith. We see that same powerful act of redemption that is initiated and earned by the blood of Christ in everyone who bows the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an encouragement it is for us to be together that our faiths might spur one another on to a greater confidence in what Christ has done that we might be bold to proclaim this truth and to share it with all who need to hear it. And there isn't anyone who doesn't need to hear it, church. So we are grateful for the book of Romans and for the work that the apostle will do in training us up to understand the gospel better, in appreciating it, and having a boldness and a confidence in the work that Christ did that we might proclaim his righteousness and his excellence to the world as we share this gospel in prayer that people will receive it. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your wonderful grace. You are a loving God. And your word is one of the ordinary means by which you build us up as your people, God. So continue to encourage us and to nourish us that the seed that you have planted in the good soil of our hearts, Lord, would grow to maturity and bear the kind of fruit that glorifies your great name. Father, we thank you that you are perfect and pure, that there is no flaw in you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you didn't bend the rules to make us yours. You fulfilled them yourself by the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. May the Spirit fill us with courage. And may every time we are tempted to turn away from the gospel or to lower our volume or, or to shrink back from the thing that has saved us, Lord God, remind us of the reasons that we have to have great confidence in you and in you alone. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.